Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. Over the last several weeks, we have been looking at what defines the church, not at a time and a place, but what are those things that consistently define the church through every age. And we've seen that the church is that people of God called to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is those people who are, first of all, indwelt by the Holy Spirit and then empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve, to do what he has called us to do through those spiritual gifts that he has given us. We've seen that the church is uh, united around certain core things, that the church, even from the very beginning, devoted themselves to specific things, to fellowship, to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to unity, to what bound them together. We saw that the church was bold in the proclamation of the gospel, even in the middle of persecution. We saw that the church is characterized by a real and genuine generosity, this, this active living out of loving one another, even in sharing material goods. And then last week, we saw that the church interacts in a very particular way with leadership, that the church is marked out by God-honoring leadership, men who prioritize prayer and the ministry of the word. We're reminded that the church isn't led by the powerful, the church isn't led by the capable, the church isn't led by the organized, the church is led by the qualified, that God in his infinite wisdom and mercy has given very particular qualifications to those who would shepherd the church knowing that they serve at the pleasure of the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. The idea that the church doesn't belong to a pastor, to a board, to elders. The church doesn't even belong to a congregation. The church belongs to Christ who is her head and who purchased her with his own blood. And those leaders serve the body for the glory of God and for the blessing of those that they serve. And this week, we're going to move forward to Acts 9, and we're going to look at a remarkable encounter, and it's one that we are very familiar with. But in the conversion of Saul, what we see is a life transformed, and we're reminded that the gospel brings about real change in the lives of believers. So if you're not there already, find your way to Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to set the stage for where we're going today. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, this is what God's Word says. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray. Lord, in the story of a familiar conversion, I pray that we would be reminded of the power of your spirit, the power of your word, the power of the gospel that transforms our hearts, that renews our minds, that enables us to live in obedience. Um, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We're reminded that Saul on that road to Damascus, although he could see on the way, he was spiritually blind. And at the time when he was physically blind, he was made finally able to see. Lord, in the areas where we're blind, open our eyes. 
where our hearts are hardened to our own sin, where our eyes are shut to our own failures, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would expose those things to us so that we might repent, so that we might be restored to fellowship with you and fellowship with one another, so that we might walk in obedience that we know brings blessing. Lord, you're a good and faithful God who does these things for us. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Change is hard. When we're thinking clearly, we want change, although sometimes we don't know how to get there. But we understand, or at least we ought to understand as believers, that change, even though it is hard, is possible. That is one of the beautiful, unique things about the Christian worldview, is the idea that real, meaningful, and lasting change is possible in our lives. We go into the world around us, and the world around us is characterized by very particular sayings. It is what it is that people don't change. And we have this wonderful, beautiful privilege of saying that that's not the case, that we are able to bear witness to real and drastic change in people's lives, that we are able to say that as believers, we're not victims of our circumstance, we're not victims of our personality, we're not victims of the people around us, but that we're able in any and every circumstance to do what honors God and to do it in a way that moves more and more toward Christ-likeness as we grow in our maturity. That is a tremendously hopeful thing to understand that the power of God influences every situation, every circumstance, every trial, every heartache, every victory that I enjoy, that I suffer in, that I struggle with, that God is not absent and that God does not leave me as I am in the midst of any of that. And today we're going to be in Acts 9 and we're going to look at the conversion of Saul and there's a very good chance that throughout this sermon I slip between Saul and Paul because that's who we're talking about. Saul of Tarsus who is most often known as Paul throughout the New Testament and we are going to see a life that experienced drastic and remarkable change and where that began and where we'll start is the idea that what came first was a changed heart. To begin to talk about change, to understand and to even hope for real and lasting change must begin with a changed heart. And because we're moving through the book of Acts the way that we are, we're not going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're kind of taking chunks and themes regarding the church as we move through. It's important first that we develop the context of what's happening. Because if you look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it starts with, but Saul, and that's a pretty clear uh, change from what's come before. It sets up a contrast, but a contrast to what? Well, if you go back to where we were last week, In Acts chapter 6, the people choose out seven faithful men. Remember that? Full of the Spirit and full of wisdom to help handle the distribution of food. And then from that point, the narrative shifts and it begins to focus on two of those men. First of all, Stephen. Stephen who is filled with the Holy Spirit and power. He does remarkable things and as happens, he is hated for it. And he's grabbed and he's drug outside of the city and even as he's preparing to be killed he gives this wonderful sermon that speaks to the history of Israel and the continual hard-heartedness of the people and it just exposes the stubborn rebellion of the religious leaders and of course they hate that exposure and Stephen faithful is stoned to death and then the narrative shifts to a man named Philip Philip who is an evangelist and it talks about the spread of the gospel into Samaria and how Philip even uh, preaches to an Ethiopian eunuch and so the gospel goes even into the court of Candace the queen of the Ethiopians and you see this spread of the gospel not only in Jerusalem but in Judea and Samaria and now even into uh, the area of Ethiopia and we're reminded once again from the very beginning what does Christ promise that his disciples would be that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that's important for us to remember because none of these things happen in a vacuum. 
None of this is accidental. The persecution that comes with the death of Stephen, the persecution that tears through Jerusalem after that at the hands of a man named Saul is not accidental. That even in those things, God is working to accomplish exactly what he said he would. Because chapter 8 starts out with Saul not only approved of Stephen's death, but Saul then was moving from house to house seeking whoever he could gather, whoever were worshipers of what was called the way, Christ, whoever were Christians, he was throwing them in prison. And so what we see is this great contrast. Faithful leadership that handled the crisis in the church. Faithful Stephen proclaiming the truth even to death. Faithful Philip presenting the gospel. But Saul. That contrast is intentional. He's the antithesis of a faithful disciple. Stephen the martyr, Saul the murderer. Philip preaching, Saul threatening. And he's not content with what's happening in Jerusalem, it says. He's still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wants to see this, what he would call a perversion of the Jewish faith, this rebellious sect of blasphemers. He wants to see them completely done away with, and he's willing to go the distance to make it happen. There's a significant distance between uh, Jerusalem and Damascus. Damascus is significantly farther north, several days' journey. This is not Paul just cleaning house where he's at. This is him moving to the farthest extents that he would be able to to do something about this faith. And on that road to Damascus, we move from the context to a very particular confrontation. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Now, we don't know exactly where this takes place, but those of us that went on the trip to Israel were actually up there in the heights, and we were able to look over the area where this took place. And on this next slide, you'll see a picture of that. Uh, this is somewhere in that frame is where this happened, which is a pretty cool thing to be able to attach this to an actual piece of ground. Now, if you're not careful, you wind up in hostile areas there with Syria, so you've got to be a little bit careful. But Somewhere between where that picture is taken and off in the distance, Paul has a remarkable encounter. So we'll just leave that up as I read through the rest of this. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. See, one of the things this confrontation does is to make it clear where the conflict is. If you ask Paul who the problem was with, what would he have said? He would have said the Christians. He would have said that his battle was against the worshipers of the way, as he called it. He, said, he would have said that his conflict was with those people who were taking the Jewish religion that he loved and adhered to and were twisting it. When he comes into conflict with Jesus Christ, it's made absolutely clear because what does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me. To be an enemy of the church is to be an enemy of Christ. What's really beautiful in this is that Christ is directly related, directly identified to his people. Paul is brought face to face with the reality that his murderous intentions, his threats, his violence, all of his sin is not directed at a people. His sin is directed first and foremost against God, against Jesus Christ. 
Now, David understood that same thing. Maybe you recall in Psalm 51, David says, I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me, and against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, you remember David's story, and David sinned against a bunch of people. David sinned greatly against Bathsheba. David sinned greatly against her husband, Uriah. David sinned against the people that he was called to lead in a way that honored God. But David recognized that first and foremost, his sin and all of his sin was against God. Paul is brought to that same recognition. And by the way, the same is true of our sin. If we're going to talk about change, we need to recognize the heart of it is rebellion against God. Sin impacts our relationships. Sin damages the, the closeness that we feel with people. But sin, first and foremost, is against the God who made us which means our greatest need isn't tips and strategies that help us stop doing destructive behaviors. Our greatest need is not to rethink why we keep damaging our relationships. Our greatest need isn't first and foremost then to be reconciled with other people at all. Our greatest need, the greatest human need universally, is to recognize that our sin is a rebellion against the God who made us and then to be reconciled with that God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as we move toward obedience in those things, will it begin to impact our relationships in a positive way? Absolutely. As we do become obedient to that, as we do recognize that our sin is against God, and as we do move toward obedience, will it mean that our relationships are better, at least from our end? Absolutely. But first and foremost, we need to understand that we sin against the Lord. And those changes that wind up happening aren't for the sake of mending relationships, and they're not for the sake of making me feel more comfortable, and they're not for the sake of anything on a human level, that they're for the sake of obeying Christ. And there's another conflict here that we're actually not made aware of in Acts chapter 9. I want you to flip with me to Acts 26. In Acts 26, Paul is giving his defense before King Agrippa. Now, Agrippa is kind of a territorial king. He's not the ruler of the Roman Empire, but he is a significant authority figure, and this is kind of in the process of Paul appealing his case up to Caesar. Um, And in Acts 26, Paul is kind of giving his account of what happened that day on the road to Damascus. Acts 26, starting in verse 12, this is how he portrays it at that time. He says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, a lot of that sounds familiar, but you'll notice that there's something else in there that the Lord says to him, and that's, why are you kicking against the goads? Uh, What is a goad? A goad is a sharpened stick, a sharpened instrument that would be placed behind an animal so that when they're plowing, when they're working, as long as they're moving in the right direction, there's no pain. But as soon as they start to push back, to kick back against the effort, uh, they're prodded a little bit. The implication here is that God's work in Saul's life did not begin on that road to Damascus, but that God had already begun to prepare him, that God had already begun to pierce and to prod and to poke at his spirit. In other words, as he is on the road to Damascus, some part of him, we don't know to what extent, we don't know exactly how, but some part of Paul knew that he was not about the Lord's business. 
And you'll notice that he was still on his way to do all the damage that he could. I love that picture. Because in Saul's refusal, God does his work. You leave it up to Saul's will, and Saul stays a murderer. But Christ will have his people. You know how wonderfully encouraging that is? That change is not up to Saul to initiate. That Christ will do. Because that confrontation then moves into absolute clarity. When God moves, when God radically changes a heart as he does, it brings absolute clarity with where he stands. Saul goes to Damascus. He has to be led by the hand by those who are with him, and he waits. And as he waits, God continues to work. Look at chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. That makes sense, doesn't it? Lord, I've heard of this guy, and he's no friend. He's certainly not a friend of the believers. He's certainly not a friend of yours. Now, remember, this is not Paul the apostle. This is not Paul the missionary. This is not Paul the church planter. None of that has happened. This is Saul the murderer. This is Saul the one out to destroy the church. And I think if we were in Ananias' place, maybe our response is even a little bit more animated. Something more along the lines of, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea who this man is? Look at what God says. But the Lord said to him, and I love this, go. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't have to go back and forth with him. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Perfect clarity. Ananias, this is not who you think he is. First of all, he is my chosen instrument. Again, This is not Saul's plan. Saul did not go up to Jerusalem hoping for some kind of uh, wonderful experience that would change his heart. He went up there to destroy the church. This is absolutely by God's design. Why is change possible? More than that, why is change not only possible, why is change anticipated and expected in the life of a believer? Because it is not according to our plan or our will that it happens. Our lives are changed and transformed because that is God's will for us. That's why Paul later on writes, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. It is why in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that your will is not only to be called and justified, but glorified, to be conformed ultimately to the image of Jesus Christ. And not only did he choose Saul, but he chooses him for a purpose, to bear his name to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Uh, Saul is going to do remarkable things, but none of them begin and end with his abilities, his personality, his plans. It is all exactly as God has planned for him. And once again, uh, that ought to be tremendously comforting and encouraging to us. Because what has God called you to do? Exactly what he's enabled you to do. To be obedient to whatever circumstance and situation he's put you in. We don't have to try and make something happen. We don't have to do better, to be bigger, to think bigger, to gain a bigger audience or influence. 
We're only called to do exactly what God has called us to do. Preach the gospel. Trust Him with the results. Work as unto the Lord. Trust Him for the provision. Raise your kids in the fear and the knowledge of God. Trust Him with their eternity. Love your spouse. Trust God with the relationship. Love people. Love the church. Love your enemies. And trust God with the outworking of all of those things in your life. And so often we say, Lord, I will trust you as long as you let me have one hand on the wheel. God, I'll trust you as long as you let me help you determine which way we're going. It's not how it works. Change in the life of a believer is possible because it happens according to God's will. And look what else gets clarified. <laughs> For I will show him not only what he's called to do, not only that he's a chosen instrument, but verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How's that for clarity? Not only who he's going to reach in the scope of his ministry, but exactly what it is going to cost him to do that. There's no bait and switch in Paul's life, Saul's life. And there's not for you and I either. Or at least there shouldn't be. What did Jesus say? They hated me. Certainly they are going to hate those who come in my life in, after me. What did he say? In this world, you are going to have trouble. You're going to be different. You're going to be aliens, strangers, outcasts. He says, to follow me, you're going to have to give up everything. But we're also told that it is worth it. See, whatever Saul gives up on the road to Damascus and at every point through his ministry from here on out, whatever he gives up will pale in comparison to the eternal reward that awaits him. At Christian, the same thing is true for us. Whatever we sacrifice for the sake of moving toward Christ's likeness, whatever we sacrifice for the name of Christ and the sake of the cross and the kingdom is absolutely worth it. And that's exactly what Paul wrote in Philippians 3. It's exactly what we read at the beginning of service, that everything here, everything associated with this world is counted as loss. It is rubbish by comparison to the upward call of Christ, the power and fellowship of his resurrection and his death. And Ananias does what the Lord tells him to do. In verse 18, and immediately as he goes and as he prays, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit and something like scales fall from his eyes and he regains his sight and he arose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Saul's eyes are opened and he is baptized. The one who went to destroy the church has now become a part of the church, publicly identified with the Savior that he had sought to destroy. Jesus identified with his people in their persecution, and now at the end of that little phrase, Saul identified with those people that he had gone to persecute. It's a pretty beautiful and drastic change that's happened. But that radical change that took place on that road to Damascus, uh, not only was a heart change. It not only brought him from spiritual death into spiritual life, that transformation of the gospel brought a transformation, a change in the way that he lived his life. The gospel is not just about a changed heart, although it is eternally about a changed heart. The gospel also leads to a changed life. And one of the clear changes that we see is in the words that Saul speaks. He goes from breathing out threats and murder, and now he begins speaking the truth. Look at verse 19, verse 20. 
And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. From threats and murder to speaking the gospel. From attempting to destroy the church, now he is passionately calling on others to become a part of that church. And he did it immediately. All that passion, all that zeal, all that fervor that was poured into destroying the church is now turned immediately toward building up that church. It's not just that he stops doing the one thing, it's that he wholeheartedly does something else. It is no wonder that as Paul writes later on in his life to the Ephesians and to the Colossians that he uses those ideas of put off and put on. So much of lasting change is enveloped in that idea. Change in the Christian life is not only to stop doing the bad things. Pharisees, legalists, have a very easy time coming up a list with a list of the bad things that you got to stop doing. Real and lasting change, real life change, happens in this. Putting off what is evil and then pursuing what is good. You want to actually change a habit? Not only do you need to stop doing one thing, you need to replace it with something else that is so consistent in the New Testament. And as we see this heart, made, this heart change made clear, uh, this putting off, it, it changes the way that he speaks. And again, it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said in Matthew 12 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. See, before the gospel transformed his heart, Saul was only doing what Saul was able to do. Speaking out of what was overflowing in his heart. But now he speaks of Christ because of that radical heart change that's happened. One of the ways that Christians experience and see and ought to demonstrate change in our lives is that our changed hearts ought to overflow in what our mouths speak. That's why when Paul does write to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 24, he says, put on the new self. Not just put off the old self, but put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And one of the ways that that will show itself, Ephesians 4.29, is this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Not just bad words, anything useless, anything corrupting, but only that which is good for building up as fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. And instead, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. As the church, we're called to be a changed people. And one of the ways that we demonstrate outward change is in the way that we speak. Because the heart change will well up and will overflow in what the mouth says. That came, change that came on Saul transformed his heart, absolutely transformed his actions. But it would also mean that he changes the way that he interacts with suffering. Because he not only speaks the truth, now Saul will be forced with... Uh, suffering persecution. Because remember what the Lord told Ananias, I'm going to show him not only who he's going to talk to, but I'm going to show him what he must suffer for my sake. And we begin to see that become a reality. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by light, night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. City of Damascus surrounded by a wall, presumably the gates, the only way in and out. And when his preaching becomes more than they can bear, they plan to put him to death. 
But fellow disciples help him. They lower him dramatically in the night, down the wall, through a basket, and Saul makes his escape. And that's quite a change. The one who had left Jerusalem and went to Damascus to persecute is now facing persecution. The one who went with threats is now threatened. And I think some of us might approach that and say, well, maybe there needs to be a change here. Maybe Paul needs to change his tactics a little bit. Because God had said that he would be a spokesman to Jews and Gentiles, even to the kings, and that can't happen if Paul's dead. So surely Paul has to do something to preserve his life here. Maybe he needs to lay low for a little bit. But look down to verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. As soon as he's kicked out of Damascus and he moves into Jerusalem, he begins doing the very same thing, speaking boldly, and his life is immediately in danger. And this becomes the pattern for the rest of Paul's life and ministry. Preach, see people saved, make enemies, and have your life threatened. When he's writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, he talks about some of the sufferings of his ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it starts this way. He says, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. It's a lot of danger. In toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And by the way, if that wasn't enough, he says in verse 28, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I know that Walter worked through persecution a couple of weeks ago, and he did a great job, but this bears repeating. The church does not respond to difficulty in the same way that the world does. See, the world looks at this and they would say, Saul, you are doing something wrong. Because Saul, this amount of suffering is bad. The world looks at suffering as a thing to be avoided. Pain is something to be avoided. Discomfort is something to be avoided. Conflict is something to be avoided. So Saul, move on, change your approach or change the message. But the reality is that the church does not seek comfort as our priority. The church does not see self-preservation as our priority. This is a little bit contentious, contentious, but the church does not see safety as a priority. That is not that we throw wisdom out. That is not what I'm saying. But for the church, obedience is always the priority. Again, Jesus said, in this life we will have trouble, but he also said that he has overcome the world. So church, obedience still has to be our priority. And Jesus said, this is what it will look like to follow me. In Luke chapter 9, he said, take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow me. Because what good will it do if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? What good does it do to live a long life, to accumulate all the wealth that you need, to meet every felt need and desire, and lose eternity? Every day, we are called to take up our cross. Not only to deny ourselves, but to die to self. To live for Christ 
and to live for others. And that is a hard calling. It's more than a hard calling. It's an impossible calling on our own strength. And that it's exactly what God strengthens and enables us to do. To live our lives in a way that is obedient to him. And he's promised that the reward is eternal, that it is unimaginably, unthinkably wonderful, and that it makes everything associated with this fallen, finite, temporary world absolutely pale in comparison. And the last evidence of this drastic change, I want to look back for a moment, and I want to see how Paul seeks fellowship. Not only does he speak the truth and, and suffer persecution, but one of the ways that change is demonstrated in his life is he begins seeking fellowship with other believers. If you look back at verse 19, as soon as he's saved, it says, for some days he was with the disciples in Damascus. Those people that he had gone on, that he had gone there to threaten, he now counted as his people, other believers. If you look down at verse 26 now, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. The first thing that he does when he moves from Damascus into Jerusalem is he attempts to join the disciples, to join the Christian community there, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, again, that sounds fairly reasonable. Because they know who he is. They don't have the completed book of Acts. They don't have the whole New Testament. They don't see the end of the story. But what they do know is what Saul had done. And now he's back in Jerusalem where he started. Remember that. Think carefully about that. Some of these people that he is now trying to be in relationship with might be related to those that he had put in prison or put even to death. These were the people that he was seeking to destroy. And now he comes saying, I'm one of you. And I think, again, we can understand the hesitation. But look at what happens. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas we were introduced to back in chapter 4. His name was Joseph, but he's called the son of encouragement. And there he's uh, providing encouragement through his generosity. Here he encourages Saul and the fact that he brings his case before the apostles and he, he vouches for him, he, he talks about the radical change that has happened in his life and what he has seen and what he's heard. And as a result, Paul is able to move into fellowship there in Jerusalem. And if you were to look further, when the church begins to experience persecution and is dispersed up in Antioch, God begins to do a remarkable thing, changing the hearts and the lives of people. And the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas up to see what's happened in Paul. And he sees what's happening in Antioch and he's thrilled. And he goes and he searches for Saul to come and do ministry there with him. It's just this constant picture of Barnabas as someone who is encouraging people in their faith, encouraging people to do what God has called them to do, to use the gifts that God has placed in them. That is the kind of life that I would love to be known for. To be a son of encouragement. And the result is this, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Changed lives lead to a healthy church. A church that is strengthened, a church at peace. The church is not at peace because of our circumstances. The church is at peace because the God of peace permeates and saturates our lives. And a changed heart that brings a changed life will change how we relate to people. And I hear it so often in so many contexts that that's just not me. Uh, I'm just quiet, I'm just an introvert. Sometimes people will be honest enough to say, I just don't really like people. And 
gently. You have to understand that your interaction with people can't be driven by your personality, certainly not labeled by your personality type. Now, not everyone has the same zeal toward conversation that others do. There are some people that thrive on their next conversation with a stranger, and there are some of us who cannot relate to that in any way, shape, or form. But one of the results of a changed heart is that we think differently about people, that people are no longer an inconvenience, that people are no longer a distraction to what we really want to do. See, so often we use those different labels and different personality types as a thinly veiled excuse in our failure to love other people. And yet that's one of the hallmarks of who we are as believers. You read through the book of 1 John and you cannot come away from that book and understand that being a Christian is anything other than demonstrating a life of love for others. At 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 4.10-12, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He said, well, I don't hate other people. I just don't like them very much. I mean, they're messy. And that's true. People are messy. Believers are messy. I'm messy to get involved with. But God says that we're called to love one another. That you and I are called to love, to comfort, to pray for, to encourage, to admonish one another. We can't do those things from arm's length. We cannot do those things from a distance. We cannot live the obedient Christian life in isolation. But when we actually do love, the whole church is strengthened. So much change in this life. And it's this powerful outworking of God's amazing grace in the life of Saul. We've all heard that song, Amazing Grace. Uh, it, it's powerful, and in part it's powerful because of the life of the man who wrote it. And part of why that song is so enduring and so lasting is that it's written from the perspective of one who never got over God's amazing grace in his life. Maybe, probably, many of you know that John Newton, the man who wrote it, had far from what we would call an exemplary Christian experience. He was uh, forced into naval service at a young age, basically captured and told, you now have the privilege of serving in the Navy. He was bright, but rebellious, wound up moving from the Navy to working on slaving ships, profiting from the slave trade, wound up uh, such a degenerate that he became a slave himself in what's now modern-day Sierra Leone. Freed from slavery, you would think that he would be done with the horrors of that, having lived that life firsthand, but he moved right back into the slave trade, eventually captaining several slave, trips, ship, slave ships of his own, one day, moving back to England in the midst of a severe storm and with the influence of reading Thomas Akempis' imitation of Christ on his mind, he gave his life to Christ. And we would think that there certainly he would kind of put off that horrible lifestyle, but for several years after that, he continued to profit through the slave trade. But God changed his life. And over time, he moved from profiteering off of the lives of other humans to being a minister of the gospel and a staunch abolitionist. And when it 
came to the end of his life, he wrote his own epitaph. And on his grave, this is what it says. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Amazing grace is written out of a heart that recognizes the power of God to make lasting change in the life of his people. And he never got over it. So what are we supposed to do with that? Three things, very quickly. First of all, we need to remember that we are not our own. Our identity is wrapped up in Christ so often and in such conformity of the world, we allow ourselves to be labeled by something other than who we actually are. If I were to ask you, who are you? How would you then describe yourself? I am your occupation. I am your social status, your marital status. I am your Enneagram personality type, number, whatever all of that is. The problem is, when we begin to understand our label as anything other than I am a Christian, then we've actually begun to subtly and perhaps dangerously buy into the world's understanding of what our lives ought to look like. Who are you? I am a Christian. I am a child of God adopted into the family of faith through the sacrifice of Christ. I am one who belongs to Christ and is being conformed to his image. But to say that is dangerous, isn't it? Because it costs us something. Because I can't say I am a Christian, but it doesn't really matter what I say because those things no longer line up. I am a Christian, but I don't really care for people because those things don't line up. But as we begin to see our identity in Christ, the wonderful thing is we begin to see that we have the ability to be changed more and more into the image and the likeness of Christ. But that leads to the second thing. Where does the strength to change come from? How does change happen? Because once we have our identity set, then we understand that we are not who we ought to be. We understand that there are things that need to change. And so often we try to change on our own strength. I just need to try harder. I just need to do better. I just need to stop doing the things. And then God will like me. Then people will accept me. Then my life will look different. Or maybe if I just changed my circumstance, if I just changed my situation, then everything would be fine. And we need to understand, Christians, that change in our lives is not something that comes from the outside. And it's certainly not something that comes from manipulating our circumstances. But change comes because that is what the Spirit brings. How do we change? By pursuing obedience. How do we change? by wholeheartedly depending on God to do that? How do we change? By consistently praying that God would push through us and would pour out in us those fruits of the Spirit, those things that don't come from us in the first place. Not that He would make us safe and comfortable and secure, but He would make us loving, patient, peaceful, kind, gentle, faithful, self-controlled. You realize that we have the idea that change happens kind of built into who we are as a church? We overlook it sometimes. What's our mission statement? pop quiz that nobody likes. It's on your bulletins. We are calling all people to receive, demonstrate, and declare God's transforming grace through Jesus Christ. We are calling all people to receive that transforming grace. But what's the second part? We are calling all people to demonstrate transforming grace. We've built it into our DNA as a church. We expect transforming grace to actually transform our lives. Which leads me to the third thing. You are not alone. You are not alone in this movement toward change. 
Do you realize that that is one of the blessed privileges that we have to walk together as a body of Christ moving forward in our growing toward Christ-likeness? God in his wisdom and mercy has placed us within a body of believers. And yes, oftentimes that is messy, but that is one of the pillars and foundational support and strengths that he's given us in our movement toward change. And we fight against it so hard. I want my sin to stay within me. We battle to guard our public image. Our social media presence displays an image that is cultivated, that is curated. And so often when we come together on Sunday mornings, it's easy for us to knock the kids who have all these social media presence. You and I put up an image that is cultivated and curated rather than honest. You want to actually experience change in our life, then bring other believers into that journey of change because that is what we are called and designed to do, to bear one another's burdens like Paul writes to the Galatians, to encourage and exhort and admonish one another, to correct one another when that's necessary, to walk that long road of difficulty as we put off the old dead self and put on the new self that's created in the image of Christ Jesus. Church, if we want change, then let's use the tools that God has graciously given us to see change happen. Let's pray. Lord, by your grace, we're not who we were. We're not what we ought to be. But we will be who you've promised we will be. Because you are faithful. The one who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And so, Lord, help us depend wholly on you to make that change. If you can take... Saul, threatening, murdering, hater of Christ, and transform him into an exemplary man of faith, then surely you can do your work in our life. Lord, I pray that we would be filled not only with joy and encouragement, but that this place would be full of testimonies of how you have proven faithful to change the lives of your people. We need to hear those things, Lord, because you are good and you are faithful. Pray that you would encourage and strengthen us with that promise today in Christ's name. Amen. And as we told you, we're going to continually bring up uh, elders to remind us and prompt us toward prayer, toward our need for the youth and family pastor position. So I'm going to call Charlie Rutledge up. Thank you, Matt. Isn't God amazing? I love these stories of how, well, you heard it all just now, so I'll leave it there. As Matt said, we've been looking for, we've been trusting the Lord for over a year now to bring a new staff position, the pastor of, is it not on? Green. Should I try it again or try a different one? Am I on? Just hold it closer to my mouth. This is probably what I'm not doing right. Eat the mic. Okay. Um, as you know, we've been looking for, seeking the Lord for a, uh, to fulfill this position that we trust him for. And, uh, but yet, we know that for now and for some time in the near future, he hasn't done that yet. Um, so we want to set aside the time for the whole month of November to particularly pray and focus on this. And uh, so today I will pray. I will try to encourage us in, in a way and pray with you. And then we want you to continue to pray in your classes here and your homes and so forth. Uh, so how do we pray? Um, we know, as, as Matt pointed out in many ways today, that God is all-powerful. That he's all-knowing and he loves us perfectly. So we know that he can and will bring this person when it's right for us, according to that power and knowledge and love. 
And we know that, um, that he hasn't done that till now, so how do we pray? That's the question I've been thinking about this week. We've been praying diligently. We've had a, a committee working diligently. We're doing everything we can in obedience to seek this position. So how do we continue to pray? Well, first we want to continue to trust him, to trust that power, that knowledge, and that love. In Philippians 4, it says we pray with thanksgiving, and if we pray with thanksgiving for that power, knowledge, and love, he'll do what? He'll give us that perfect peace. So first we pray with thanksgiving. And then we thank him that this is a test of our faith, isn't it? This is hard to wait. It's hard to wonder, what is God doing? What's he telling us? So this is a test of our faith that he designed for our good and for his glory. James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that's how we pray with that thanksgiving. And then we ask for wisdom. It continues to say, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let us ask in faith, with no doubting. So that's my encouragement to you as we think of this week as how we pray. We pray with thanksgiving for who God is and what he's doing, knowing that he will bring the person at the right time and the right, the right person and at the right time. And we pray um, for wisdom because we know that he's the one who gives us wisdom liberally. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for your power. <clears throat> for we know that your plan cannot be stopped. In your power, you will do exactly what is right. And we thank you for your complete knowledge. For we know that you know just what is best for us now and in the future. And Lord, we thank you for your perfect love for this body, for the young people of this body and the families here. And we thank you that we know that you are doing what is best according to that power, knowledge, and love. So we ask for wisdom and understanding. First, that we understand what you are doing in us through this trial, through this time of waiting. And we ask for wisdom to know the preparation you want to do in us as a body and each member before you bring this person to us at your perfect time. And Lord, we pray for wisdom to fill those on the committee and all the leaders and the parents and the whole body that we would know your will and obey you in that. And Lord, we pray for wisdom to be given liberally to the man you are calling to come here to serve us as he serves you. And we thank you, Father, that we can trust you as we wait on you and seek to please you now and every day. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.